Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Chicago Baseball Conversation on the new flagship home of the Sox, 720 WGN. White Sox Weekly on the air as we take you till 4.30. White Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays coming up. My name is Mark Carmen. Huge weekend for the Chicago White Sox. Not necessarily on the field, although it was nice to get a win last night. First one of the second half. And good to see Adam Engel back with the club and having a big night. Last night, 9-2, beating the Tampa Bay Rays. But uh, it is Harold Baines weekend. Harold Baines going into the Hall of Fame, into baseball's Hall of Fame, tomorrow afternoon. Who is not excited to see Harold Baines give a speech? The most quiet guy, not just in the history of the White Sox, but maybe in the history of baseball. You know, you read writers who were covering him at the time. Uh, Paul Sullivan is in Cooperstown, and Rick Morrissey is in Cooperstown, and these are guys that were around the White Sox back in the day. And Harold would hit a walk-off homer, and they would ask him a question, Harold, did you, did you get that one? And his, according to Sully, his one-word answer t- tended to be evidently. And then he'd just walk away. Had no interest in talking to the media. And according to Harold, it wasn't that he didn't like the media. He was just a soft-spoken guy. But Mr. Consistent, right? From 1982 to 1999, Harold Baines never hit below 271. 2,800 plus hits in his career. The baseball writers never voted him in. Uh, But then here comes the Hall of Fame committee and Harold going in tomorrow. When I was growing up, one of my good friends, uh, his name is is Rob Ginsburg. And uh, his dad had relation with Jerry Reinsdorf, and so he was going to games, a privileged young man, and I think cried in 1983 when Jerry Dubzitsky had his moment in time, but uh, was a huge Herald fan, and I was just talking with him before the show, and I said, Rob, you got you to you call, call the show. You're, 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 you are living proof of, of, of Herald, so uh, Mr. Gins joins me now here on 720 WGN, the biggest White Sox fan I know. Robert. Harold Baines, are you getting emotional? Yes, I am, Mark. It's a it's a privilege and an honor to be on your show. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm definitely getting emotional, even though Harold uh, never did. So I should probably <laughs> honor him by being stoic and collective. But I, I am emotional. The, uh, you know, you're a young, you're a young guy. You're watching the White Sox. Was he, was he your favorite? Where would you, where would you rank? Was, were you a Ron Kittle guy? There was a lot of guys on I that '83 team. I think overall, my when I just look back on the history of the White Sox, my favorite player of all time was Joe Creedy, but I would put I would put a Harold Baines at number two. I, as I was thinking about uh, my childhood and my time with watching Harold, is just uh, you know even even though I had a privileged upbringing, as you said, there was some times of uh, stress and anxiety in high school, a lot of volatility. And the one constant in my life was Harold Baines and his like his high his above average hitting bat, batting average and just his uh, calm, cool, and collected self on a daily basis was something that I clung to as a White Sox fan and as a child. I thought you were about to talk about the leg kick, which was one of the coolest <laughs> things in the history of baseball. Harold had uh, maybe the greatest leg kick in all of baseball. Andy Mazur, you're staring at me. That clear that leg. Who had a better leg kick than Harold Bates? For real. That and nobody was doing it back then. Uh, and also, he, you know, he was a guy who battled knee injuries, so he, his numbers were perhaps not as great as they could have been. But but the the leg kick remained consistent. Rob, the leg kick was a hallmark of uh, Harold Bates. I'm I'm very happy for the guy on a sincere on a sincere level. I really am, and I do believe that he was. Uh, you know, the White Sox had a lot of struggles over the years, and he was the lone star in many of those years. So he meant uh, means a lot to the ball club and to uh, all the fans. That that's uh, you're just led into one of the comments that Ozzie Guillen made about about Harold, saying basically like, look, the dude was throwing out hits and getting RBIs with, with nobody around him. Uh, Frank Thomas said the same thing. One of the most clutch hitters of all time. You know, like you're a Sox fan, you're watching, and, and you need a base hit. Was there anybody else you'd want up at the plate? No, no, not in, not not that I would have up there in the history of uh, the, the squad that I've been alive for. That would be the guy I would want up over a Frank Thomas in a clutch situation. Wow. That's a big comment right there. Uh, <laughs> I think Frank might be headed down to the studio to dispute that. Actually, I, I, I don't. I, I gotta go through my Frank Thomas quotes right here, but I think he might have actually said something along those lines. I think he said he said that he was a better hitter, but that Harold was more clutch. That that is some big time high praise. Gins, thanks for kicking us off, man. Congrats on Harold going to the Hall of Fame. It's the, your childhood you. right, right in front of you. All right, great show, Mark. I'll I, talk to you soon. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. 312-981-7200. I'd love to hear some memories of Harold. White Sox fans, I know you're out there. And uh, this is one of – this is a Chicago treasure, really, Harold Baines. It's interesting. Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, signs off on Larry Himes trading Harold in 1989 to the Texas Rangers for Wilson Alvarez and a guy by the name of Sammy Sosa. And, of course, the White Sox end up punting on Sosa and sending him to the Cubs and all that. And George Bell came over. They won the division in 93, all that type of stuff. But as Harold's coming back to play with the Rangers against the White Sox, Jerry retires his jersey while he's still an active player for, you know, he he was going to play for another 10 years. He retired his jersey because he just felt kind of sick inside is how he put it that, you know, Harold wasn't around and it made him feel better to at least retire the jersey, honor him, 
it was obviously very hard for him to to trade Harold in what in a deal that the White Sox thought uh, was great for them at the time. And I mean, Wilson Alvarez went on to have a great career, and Harold ended up coming on back. But uh, and the White Sox were rebuilding when they made that deal, so you could you want to bring it back to today. It's sort of similar to, although not at all, but sort of similar to punting on Chris Sale when he's in his prime. Um, but this Harold had a different level of respect within the organization and around baseball than probably anyone the White Sox have ever traded. So it is Harold Baines day today. Hawk Harrelson is going to be on the show at 3.30. Bill Melton a little bit after 3 o'clock. And coming up next is uh, Ron Kittle. I actually talked to Kitty last week, but he had some great thoughts about Harold. And so we're going to play about uh, three or four minutes of that back for you coming after this quick timeout. But first, head to the park for Dollar Hot Dogs every Wednesday home game this season. You can take advantage of this unbeatable deal on Wednesday, July 24th, as the Sox take on the Marlins, 7, 10 p.m. It's brought to you by Securian Financial who can help you make every moment count. Find out more at securian.com. For tickets, visit whitesox.com slash dollar dogs today. Kitty, coming on back here, 720 WGN. Two on, one out, three runs in. Sox up 6-2. The pitch is swinging a long one. Deep center field. Matos back at the track, at the wall. Gone! Three-run homer. He dropped it over the wall. He slam-dunked a homer. Sox lead 9-2. There's the homer. Beans has hit his 11th. August 15th, 2000. Harold Baines' final big league home run. Came against the Baltimore Orioles, one of his former teams. And that was Ed Farmer on the call in 2000. That's awesome. Great job, Curtis Coke, pulling that. That was really fun to hear. I might need that one again before the end of the show. like the musical component there, too. Uh, it's Harold Baines Day. He is going into baseball's Hall of Fame tomorrow. We got more. Harold highlights coming up. We got May 4th, 1999. He had a walk-off Grand Slam. We got September 22nd versus the Brewers, his 300th career homer. We got 1991 versus the Orioles. Uh, this is actually when he's playing for Oakland. He had three homers for the A's. We'll give him a little love outside of Chicago, and then we'll uh, go back to 1986 So versus the Detroit Tigers. Uh, back in April, another Baines monster home run. Ron Kittle, of course, played with Harold and was very good friends with Harold, as you're about to hear. Uh, Kitty certainly had his level of success on that 1983 White Sox division winning team, 99 game, 99 game winner. And uh, you know, these I didn't realize until we had Kitty on last week exactly how close they were, but these guys were as close to uh, best friends in major league baseball that you would get. And so here was Kittle explaining all of that. You know, I've, I've been with Harold in the minor league since 1979. So I pretty much know, know him as good as anybody there is. And uh, I couldn't be more happier for him. I think I'm more happier than he is to tell you the truth. And uh, he's a very humble, quiet individual, uh, well-deserving of that award also. So, you're, what was what made Harold so tough at the plate? I mean, he could he could take the ball out of the ballpark. He could go the other way. He had uh, it, you know he had the leg kick that was unorthodox, but worked for him. Like what would what would you say that made him so good? Well, you know he was a clutch player. I mean, when they had uh, game winning RBIs 
when they started uh, tabulating that. He, he led the league, I think, a couple of years in it. Uh, I was kind of mad because, you know, he'd get two RBIs right in the first inning, and uh, I'd get a couple RBIs, and we'd win by one. So the winning RBI went to him. But, uh, you know, he was clutch. He was quiet. Uh, he handled pressure pretty doggone good. Uh, very, You know, he's quiet. I'm loud, you know. I, I, I voice my opinion. Uh, Harold just did his job day in and day out. And uh, probably one of the best clutch hitters there were in baseball, period. I think George Brett might be just a little bit above him. Uh, but I'd still take Harold any, any day of the week. So Harold was the same with his teammates as he was with the media. I mean, it, you know, you, you, you weren't going to go up to Harold Baines and get uh, – you know, three paragraphs if you were a reporter covering the team. But you're saying that in the clubhouse for the game, same way? Absolutely. He just did his job. You know, he was prepared himself. Uh, you know, when he was number one draft choice, we were in the minor leagues together. <clears throat> and uh, they worked him hard. He worked hard, never complained about anything. Uh, just did his job day in and day out. And I saw him progressively get better. I mean, I remember at first they'd hit him fly balls and he couldn't catch it, let alone see it. It hit him in the shoulder. Uh, but they, obviously, the scouting department, they knew what he had into him, and uh, the guy could hit. He could just flat-out hit and uh, love him to death like a brother. But I think the world of Harold Baines, I couldn't be any happier for him, and I'm sure there's other people in other towns who have their favorite players who think they should be in there. But uh, we got a Harold Baines, and he's going in uh, this coming weekend, and uh, I'm, I'm pumped for him. Are you going to go? Are you going to Cooperstown? Absolutely. I'm going to be the one making funny faces at him so uh, <laughs> he doesn't get emotional up there uh, and talk about his dad and, you know, his family. You know, he, I, I know him, like I said, as good as anybody there is in the game. And he, he's just a good guy. And you got to keep a little humor in with him because it should be emotional because he misses his dad. And his dad was a big reason why he was playing baseball in the minor leagues all the way up to the big leagues. And, uh, I know if he had one wish, he'd want his dad to be there for the inductions. and uh, so. But unfortunately, he's going to get Ron Till and Jerry Reinsdorf and everybody else there. What, what, what more do you know about the relationship with his dad that you could share, Ron? Well, it was just a big part of his life. He's the one that taught him how to play baseball. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Harold told me in the past, that his dad loved baseball and had an opportunity to play some, you know, co not college baseball, you know, summer league and tryouts, but you know, he was busy raising a family, and that probably happens to so many people over the years uh, that you just try to wish your skill sets onto your son. And I think his dad, uh, who's been, God bless his soul, been gone for a while, passed on some pretty good skills to Harold. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So you're not going to give us a little hint on what this gift to Harold is, will you? No, no, nobody knows what's going on. Matter of fact, I don't even really know what is going on until <laughs> I put it together. But uh, it, it's going to be pretty doggone cool and uh and I kind of told him I'm making him something, and he's trying to, you know, give me hints. And I said, no, I ain't telling you, not until you see it. And uh, he's excited. He knows I make some pretty cool stuff, and uh, he's going to love it. So there you go, Ron Kittle from last week. And just talking about Harold, I thought it, we should – we rarely bring stuff back, but that was a guy that clearly loves his teammate and Kitty, making him something special, which uh, Ron Kittle does the Ron Kittle benches and everything else, uh, ronkittle.com if you want to check out some of Kitty's work. want to give him some love there for coming on the show. Uh, he mentioned Harold's father, uh, whose name was Linwood, and he passed away back in 2014. And his father was very soft-spoken, 
just like Harold became. So he was a guy that led by example, if you will, was not going to sit there and talk boisterously about himself. And Harold, you know, took that on. And I mean, if, if that's not a cool story about just, you know, obviously having some tremendous love for his dad, I, I, that's just a beautiful thing. Linwood played some semi-pro ball and he taught Harold how to play. And apparently Harold, you know, was playing Little League back in, he was, grew up in Maryland. And Bill Veck, who was the White Sox owner at the time, ended up drafting him and claimed that he saw Harold play Little League Baseball. Harold said, I never saw a guy that looked like Bill Veck at any of my Little League games. But, I, you know, it's not like you're a kid. You're checking out the stands as to who's in there. So maybe perhaps uh, Veck actually did see him as a Little Leaguer. The Sox picked him number one overall in the 1977 draft. That was ahead of a, a Joliet Catholic pitcher, Bill Gullickson, who you may remember. Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer himself, went number three overall in that draft. Uh, but the Sox loved 18-year-old Harold Baines, and uh, he made his debut April 10, 1980. Played in right field, 5-3 loss to the Orioles. They're facing Jim Palmer. Harold went 0-4, but uh, he went on to obviously have a phenomenal, phenomenal career. And Vec sold the team in 1981. And that's when Jerry Reinsdorf came on board and fell in love with Harold himself. Bill Melton's going to come up here after 3 o'clock, talk some Harold Vance, and we'll talk about the team as well, as, of course, Melty does postgame on NBC Sports Chicago. So we'll deviate a little bit uh, and, and talk about what's going on on the field as well, coming up after 3 o'clock. Hawk Harrelson on the program just after 3.30. This is White Sox Weekly on 720 WGN. Down the middle, the old one. High fly to left, down the line, to the pole in left field. Got a chance, and it goes into the seats for a home run for Yomer Sanchez. White Sox lead 5-2. to two. That was good to see last night. Home run number two for Yomer in the seven-game losing streak over White Sox 9, the Tampa Bay Rays 2. Another the best thing last night was Ronaldo Lopez. Seven strong innings of work for Lopi. He struck out eight, gave up six hits, only the two runs, and uh, getting all the way through seven. That was good to see. Bill Melton joins me now as uh, Melty, of course, doing the coverage for NBC Sports Chicago. We'll talk some Harold Baines, but it was good to see the White Sox get a win last night, Melty. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Carmen, I haven't, uh, <clears throat> since that All-Star break, I haven't been in the studio very much, and I missed most of their uh, seven or eight game losing streak, but you know what it is? It, it boils down to starting pitching. I mean, when you got Giolito's running off nine in a row, and then all of a sudden, like any pitcher, he hits, you know, hits a bump in the road, takes a couple, two or three times before he'll come out of his. And at the same time, he had Lopez. The other guys are getting Tommy John, so it's tough to put a five man rotation together. And I think. You know, it's it's tough on a ball club when you when you when you're not when you think you're in every game, but all of a sudden you have a bad inning on the mound, and all of a sudden you're out of the game. And then when you stop hitting, surprisingly, uh, they had nine extra base hits last night. I didn't realize you only had two or three before that, but that'll lose you a lot of games. Yeah, no no doubt about it. Are you concerned about Ronaldo Lopez Melty, or do you think he's just uh, you know standard young guy early in his career having his struggles? Well, I think every young guy has struggles. The question is, how quick do you come out of it? In other words, 
last year when he had that great run, I said, boy, we've got a pretty good arm right here. He's going to hit a bump in the road. He hit the bump in the road and never came back. And that's what you worry about with young guys. Same way with Dylan Cease. He's going to get hit quite a bit. The question is, is he going to run off three or four in a row and then have a bad outing and then come back and throw really well? So it's mostly all about youth is inconsistency. It has nothing to do with their stuff. But I think uh, what Lopez did, he stayed away a lot from that breaking ball, threw a lot of change-ups. You know, he's got 97-mile-an-hour fastball. All you have to do is really spot it because uh, every hitter had weaknesses. And if you got a good fastball, a lively fastball, you get ahead of the hitter, you can put him away with that other stuff. So, yeah, I think this is – I want to say this is growing pains. they got great arms. The question is how fast can they come back when they – you know, when they're not throwing well after a couple of starts. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. How quickly will you figure out what is now going on and get yourself back going? Because some guys, you're, you're absolutely right, Malti. They, they they start out great, the league <clears> figures <throat> them out, and then they can never make the adjustment, and then next thing you know, career over. I don't think that's going to happen well, to Ronaldo Lopez, but you see that all the time. No, but the thing is, when, you gotta, when you're rebuilding a ball club, the pitching is the most important thing. Uh, I would assume next year, I'm just guessing the White Sox – We'll probably go get an established starter somewhere. I don't know who's available, but get a veteran on the mound that can, you know, pretty much carry the load when when there's down times. And each year these guys will get, be getting better and better. Again, good arms. Uh, the question is, you know, when you go into a baseball, when you go into a season, it's it's hard not to have but one starter, uh, and that was Giolito. And the White Sox did a pretty good job. The the players did of winning a lot of close games, keeping the, the bullpen was doing a pretty good job, keeping us in games. But again, when you run out after that, when you run out of Giolito and then all of a sudden you got four starters in a row, Nova's done a pretty good job, but you got four starters after that, you got to wait, you know what, maybe 10 or 12 days before you get your ace in there. You, gotta, you have to have a stopper, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Somebody needs to stop any straight. Yeah, and you look. You you need more than one guy in the rotation going well. And maybe yeah. I mean end of the you're, you can't win like that. There's no doubt. And they've also been missing Tim Anderson. They've been missing Aloy Jimenez. So, so, so th those are fa those are factors as well. Did you see the year that Timmy's having at short coming along? Yeah. I mean, this this guy's had a great season. No, I thought he'd be converted. In my opinion, was to play center field. He'd be an outstanding center fielder. But he's really improved after his third year at shortstop. He's got He's always had great range. Now he's making uh, decent throws. That's where a lot of his errors comes in when he throws off balance and stuff. And, you know, I tried to get him to set his feet a little bit. But the question is, he's getting to everything. He makes great plays. So, you know, shortstop is his position. Maybe Madrigal next year, which I understand is a really good defensive player. I'm not sure he's going to be here. But if he is, you get those two guys working together. And uh, then if you look at uh, Makata third base, you know, the White Sox have never had a five-tool player in third. You know, I could feel, I could hit home runs. Joe Creedy could feel with the best of them. Ventura could feel. They were both Ventura home run hitters and stuff. But this kid, you're talking about a switch hitter that can steal 30 bases a year, hit 25 or 30 home runs. He's got a, a, a good glove at third base for his first full year over there. He's got a good arm. And, and again, that's, that's a five-tool player. So, the White Sox in the infield, and especially up the middle, are going to be in pretty good shapes if this kid Robert uh, comes through and plays center field. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Moncada. I appreciate you bringing him up here, Melty. Because yeah. nobody 
knew that he was going to play third base to the level that he's playing it. And you, of course, know the position pretty well. He's got quick hands. He's got a cannon for an arm. I mean, it's impressive. Well, on top of that, he's a switch hitter, and he can run. You know, he'll steal 30 bases a year. You hit 25 or 30, he probably could be a 30-30 guy in a year or two. But, again, he plays a good third base. He's bigger than a lot of people think. People think because he played second base, he wasn't that big. That's a good-sized man out there. But there, I've never – again, how many five-tool players? The guy I was thinking about was Mike Schmidt, a guy like Mike Schmidt, you know, that could do everything, steal bases, great fielder, home runs, hit, that type of thing. Well, see, we, we've had third basemen, but none of us have been able to steal 30 bases a year. And Makata's that kind of player. I mean, it's just very, very rare for the position. I, you're making me yes. go- Google up uh... – Mike Schmidt stole bases. I mean, I remember him hitting bomb after bomb after bomb and playing a great third base, but I don't remember him stealing stealing a bunch of bags. He could run. That's interesting. I don't know how many bags. I, at least 20 a year, I'm just guessing, but he could run. That's okay. He had good speed and everything. So I'm just I, – if I have to make a comparison, third baseman's Arenado with uh, – that guy's in a separate world of his own. The guy with Colorado, no question about it. Yeah. I mean, he's as good a drug man as I've ever seen, and he can run. You're right, whether you steal 20 or 30 bases. Not many third basemen can steal 20 or 25 bases, and I think Makata could do it. So, Melty, let's talk some Harold Baines here. <laughs> did he – Did he? Have, did you, what's the longest conversation you ever had with Harold? Well, I started that fantasy camp about 20 years ago, and Harold was there every year. And, we, yeah, he – look, at, Harold's a good man. He's just, you know, he's opinionated, but he makes some short sentences – he laughs a lot. He smiles a lot. Uh, he's a great guy to be around. I can't shut him up now as an ambassador. <laughs> I, I got to. I got to get Kittle in there to calm him down a little bit. So uh, Harold's pretty out, a lot more outgoing than he was probably as a player. Uh, I didn't know Harold as a player. I was out of the game when he was with the White Sox. I only got to know him uh, when I came back uh, with the White Sox. And then you know we see a lot of each other. Uh, in that fantasy camp we ran for 20 years, see a lot of them now with Kittle at the ballpark as ambassadors. And, uh, very, you know, Harold's pretty outgoing. I mean, you know, he walks into a suite and, you know, he just starts talking to people right away. Does a great job. I would never have thought that. So you're telling me that Harold and yeah. his an ambassador walks into suite, people are like, what's up, Harold? They don't think he's going to say much, and then he just starts, you know, firing away? Yeah, shut him up. That's what Kittle said. We can't keep him quiet. <laughs> Said, Harold, we got to go in that suite, man. You're going to have to calm down a little bit. <laughs> you know what? This is, a, again, uh, you know, Hall of Fame. People ask the question, you know, is he Hall of Fame? And I, I look at it this way. I was involved early in the 70s when they came up with the DH. Now, Harold didn't DH this whole time, but the DH is a position. When you're back in the 70s, it was, a, it was a way not to play and still hit and get a day off. That's the way it was looked at. It was primarily put in for the fact that Major League Baseball, because pitching was so good, was losing so much attendance. They didn't want to lose stars like Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva, all the great players that couldn't play their positions because they were getting older with their knees and stuff, but they could still hit and to draw people. That's one of the reasons why the designated hitter came in is to keep stars in the game. So when you went to Minnesota 
You got to see Killebrew an extra couple of years, that type of thing. To me, it's, it's developed into a position, and it's a very difficult position. It takes a while to adjust to it. Back then it did. Right now it's probably easier because, you know, it's a position. And, you know, when you think about the Hall of Fame, or how many guys are in there just because they got a glove? That's fair. Most guys are in there because of RBIs, home runs, and they could hit and drive in runs. It's exactly what Harold Baines did. Like you can pick out a few Hall of Famers. I can't go back in the in the 20s. But there's some guys in there, they were great gloves. But they were also, you know, stealing bases and pretty good uh, everyday players, no question about it. But most of the people in there, because they could hit, you know, they, they led the league in something, they were MVPs, they were champions, uh, but most of them uh, could basically hit. I, I start, That's exactly what Harold could do. I mean, I, I started with the show just with one stat that I think jumps out at me. He never hit below 271 from 82 yeah. to 99. I mean, that's incredible consistency. He ends up with 2,866 hits. He battled, you know, he had the knee stuff going on too, so that that number would have been even higher. It would have been well over 3,000. But 2,866 is not exactly too terrible. He almost had 400 home runs. He was, you know, a tremendous clutch hitter, 1,628 RBIs. That still ranks 34th in, in big league history. Uh, you know, I mean, come on. I, I, I don't see yeah, what. All that you ever hear about Harold Baines, when I came back with the White Sox, is how what kind of a clutch hitter this guy really was. Again, I didn't get to see him play. Uh, you know, I didn't get to see him hit, but I look at numbers. And if, if you needed a big hit, this was a guy that got it for you. It's when he was with the White Sox, and, of course, he gets traded out. But if, if you're driving in almost 3,000 runs, is that what he had, almost 3,000? He, he had almost 3,000 hits. He drove in almost 1,700 yeah, RBIs. 3,000 hits and 1,700, 1,800 RBIs. That's huge. And a lot of those were big hits. And then, you know, Harold uh, was uh, very popular, very uh, popular with uh, the organization. That I believe we might have just lost Bill Melton. Uh, let me put Bill Melty on hold. But it's a, an it's, 81 or, Oh, there you are. Melty, we lost you for a second there. You're talking about how popular it was. I mean, Frank Thomas thinks he's going to cry. Ozzie Gian's talking about Harold Baines was always, quote, cool, man. Uh, yeah, you know. He'll cry. <laughs> he'll cry. That's what Jerry said. I'm talking to Ryan's First thing he'll do is cry. <laughs> you know, that's true. That's what they all say. Uh, again, I, I wasn't the teammate of Harold. I, I'm around him all the time now, and he's, you know, he's an older person right now, but he's very. I guess sentimental and whatever, and uh, he's beloved by everybody, and there, you know, everybody in the organization is happy that he's going into the Hall of Fame. But he's going there for a reason. Melty, he's you... one of the better hitters in Major League Baseball. Yeah, yeah. Melty, you a crier like Field of Dreams? You, you get a little tear in the eye when? Uh... No, <laughs> no, I didn't have I didn't have close to three thousand hits either. So you don't cry unless you're close to three thousand. Fair enough. That's, I, that's what that's the way I looked at it. But anyway. Uh, it's a great honor for him. I think it's great for the organization. Uh, having a time, which is really you, you, as you're leaving here, Melty, you are dead on with Mike Schmidt. 23 stolen bases in 74, 29 in 75, 14, 15, 19, 12, mm -hmm. 12, 14. He had 174 stolen bases in his career, which also included yeah, five. Well, he, he, five was a, he was with some good hitting Philly team, so he probably didn't have to steal that much. 
But he had a great arm. He's a great fielder and a lot of power. Yeah, yeah, 548 career home runs. Melty, great, always great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for jumping on, and, and stay cool out there, all right? You're welcome. Take it away. It's a hot one, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. Thanks. See you, Carmen. See you, Bill Melton. You're awesome. Bill Melton on the 720 WGN White Sox Weekly Talk at some Harold Baines and the team as well, who uh, we got Andy Mazur pregame coming up at 435 White Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays. They head to the park on Saturday, July 27th, as the Sox take on the Minnesota Twins. That's a 6-10 first pitch, and it's Marvel Superhero Night. The first 12,000 fans, hopefully our producer Curtis Koch will be one of them. He loves Marvel. He'll take home a White Sox Spider-Man bobblehead. You get your tickets today at WhiteSox.com. And Family Sundays feature tickets as low as $5 in the upper level, 15 bucks in the lower level. Parking is only $10, plus there's special family-focused activities located throughout the ballpark, including Kids Run the Bases Sundays, which is sweet at the end of the day. Uh, Family Sundays proudly presented by Coca-Cola. Grab an ice-cold Coca-Cola and enjoy the game. Visit WhiteSox.com slash Sundays to purchase your tickets today. Hawk Harrelson coming up after 3.30 as we get you ready for the Sox and the Rays and our tribute to Harold Banks, who's going into the Hall of Fame tomorrow. It's White Sox Weekly, 720 WGN. Poche's pitch. Line drive toward the right field line, and this is down. Fair ball going to get into the corner, racing home. Sanchez racing for third. It is Angle. He's going to get there, standing up with a two-out triple to make it 7-2 White Sox. Congrats to Adam Engel. That triple coming in the top of the fifth last night. White Sox went on to win 9-2 over the Tampa Bay Rays. Adam Engel got sent out. And he was scuffling at AAA. I sit there and do the minor league report each game, right? And I'm watching Adam Engel, and it is not going well. And then something, I want to say around about close to the end of May, early June, something started clicking. And he's throwing out multiple hits nightly, getting some stolen bases, all of it. And uh, gets himself back to the big league club as the White Sox making a move earlier this week. Angle back up from AAA and Charlie Tilson sent out uh, down at AAA. 270 was his batting average, and that was under 200 for a good portion of time. He had 13 doubles, four triples, nine homers, 29 RBIs, 13 steals, 64 games. Uh, and he used to went down May the 5th. He was batting 212 at the time. And they said, hey, you got to go down and you got to work on your hitting young Adam Engel, who's not super young anymore, right? 27 years old. But here's a guy, as the White Sox continue to figure out their outfield, who's going to be the fourth, fifth outfielder? And Engel is interesting because he is elite defensively. I think one of the things Charlie needs to work on going back down to AAA is shoring up his defense a little bit. Because you would, a guy like that, and Charlie Tilson, left-handed hitter, got good speed, uh, but he should be nails in the outfield, and he's just not quite there yet. Adam Engel uh, made some phenomenal, phenomenal plays last year, scaling the wall and whatnot, and uh, we'll see what he does here with another opportunity with the big league club. Had a good game last night, a couple of knocks, scored some runs. So congrats to Adam making it on back. All right, Hawk Harrelson coming up after 3.30 as we continue our tribute to Harold Baines. And always good to talk to Hawks. So looking forward to that. News in two minutes on 720 WGN.
At the wall, the 380, gone. A three-run homer for Tim Anderson. 3-1 White Sox. Back to White Sox Weekly on 720 WGN. Been looking forward to this for a while. Harold Baines going into the Hall of Fame. Mark Harmon with you on 720 WGN. And I miss him. Man, there's no other way around it. Uh, Hawk Harrelson, who is now a White Sox ambassador, but of course not on your television every night. But he's joining us now on White Sox Weekly. Hawk, we miss you, man. It's good to talk to you today. Hi, Mark. How are you, buddy? I, I am great, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking some Harold and some White Sox baseball with you. But I, I do want to know, are, are you missing it? How's, how's it feeling being, you know, having the freedom that you have now, Hawk? Well, you know, it's been a mixed bag, so to speak, this year because the weather, you know, earlier on was so terrible. And uh, I didn't get a chance to see my grandsons play very much because of the fact of the weather. And then I had a—I was under the weather there for about uh, three or four weeks, and that kept me uh, hamstrung, so to speak. So it's been—it's uh, been tough. But do I miss it? You damn right I miss it. You don't do that for 42 years and 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 not miss it. You know, I uh, I watch all the games, listen to a lot of the games. Uh, and it's just, uh, I'm just so happy for Harold, though. But I'm, I'm more concerned right now about the heat. You know, last time we had a heat wave like this in Chicago, there were a lot of elderly people that uh, that passed away. Yep. And I'm just hoping they're able to uh, somehow, you know, stay cool and, and stay healthy. Yeah, stay safe out there. And we're going to get a little break in the heat coming up, I guess, tomorrow. So everybody just, you know, take care of themselves today. But all right, here, let's talk some Harold. And I don't know where you rank them all time as far as DHs are concerned, Hawk, but uh, clutch, humble, a winner, all of it. I mean, what do you appreciate most about Harold Baines? Just what you just said. I mean, you know, he's one of the greatest clutch hitters I've ever seen. And, you know, I played with a guy who won a triple crown uh, one year in 1967 when we won the pennant when I was playing with the Red Sox, and that was Carl Yastrzemski. And Carl Yastrzemski, uh, to this day, was the the greatest clutch hitter I've ever seen with Big Poppy being close. You know, Big Poppy had, you know, a long time there where he was just awesome. And Harold Harold is in the top five. There's no question about that. Because, and I can tell you one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, and I can tell you that uh, against good left-handed pitching, because Yastrzemski was a left-handed hitter, against good left-handed pitching, in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, you know, when you're facing guys like Plesak and all you know, Sparky Lyle and all those uh, good left-handed relievers, Harold Baines was the best in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning that era of Saul, facing good left-handed uh, relievers. And he was just a, a terrific teammate. And all of us were so disappointed all this long time. He should have been in there a long time ago because you get guys like, you know, like a Harold, you get Bert Blylevin who didn't get in until a long time later. And we're just so happy to see Harold because he was the he was the optimum teammate, you know Harold, and also he was the quietest guy. Well, actually, the second quietest guy I've ever seen of all the thousands of players that I've ever ever been around, talked to, played with, played against. And uh, one of the greatest interviews I ever saw in my whole career was Drysdale and I when he was, he was my partner and. And we had about five or six minutes to kill. We had to carry it to the uh, top of the uh, hour. And they came over and said, uh, Don, go down and interview Drysdale. 
And he looked at me and sort of shrugged his shoulders. And I thought they were going to say, Hawk, go down and interview Drysdale, you know. So Don got up. He went down there. We had about five or six minutes to kill. And walking down there and getting down on the field, I knew what Don was doing. He was trying to figure out how he was going to interview Harold Baines for five or six minutes. <laughs> right. Not easy. And you know where I'm, you know where I'm going? That's right, Mark. You're in the business. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So Harold, Don went down, and he's interviewing Harold, and he is prefacing every question anywhere from 45 minutes to uh, 45 <laughs> seconds to a minute. And then Harold would say, yes. Then he would ask him another question, and he'd preface it about another 45 seconds to a minute, and Harold would say, maybe. <laughs> he would preface another question for 45 seconds to a minute, Harold would say, no. <laughs> Finally, he got done. And I tell you what, when he got done with the interview, I gave I was up in the booth, I stood up and gave him a standing O because that was one of the greatest interviews I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that that's that's why he was getting paid the big bucks right there, Hawk. I, I I'm wondering, you know, because you you didn't get in from the baseball writers. It it took the Hall of Fame committee coming in and, and Jerry Reinsdorf's on that committee and, and, and uh guys who had just tremendous respect for Harold who clearly deserves to be in there. But I'm wondering if you think that he didn't get in originally because he was so soft-spoken and guys who were covering the game, who had the votes, they probably got frustrated talking to him. Yes, that was a huge reason, Mark. That was a, I think it was the reason, really, that he didn't get in earlier. And there are a lot of times there are reasons, you know, you know with the voters, so to speak. It's like Jim Rice when I was with the Red Sox and uh, – I used to tell Jimmy, I said, that, that, uh, after the games, uh, I'd listen to the, you know, I'd be in the clubhouse and listen to him talking to the writers. And finally, Jimmy and I played a lot of golf together. And he's like a son uh, to us. And I would tell him, I said, damn it, Jimmy, you got to be nicer to the writers. They got a tough job to do. And if, if you're not nicer to the writers, I'm telling you, that they're going to wait to the last year of your eligibility before you go in the Hall of Fame. And and sure enough, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't. And he's a wonderful person. Don't get me wrong, but he just couldn't do it. And then they did indeed make make him wait to the last year of his eligibility before they put him in the Hall of Fame. And a lot, that, there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. I mean, how could you keep Burt Blyleven, you know, one of the greatest right-handed pitchers in the history of the game? I mean, there's no question about it. I remember, uh, I remember a guy named Santana. They had. Johan Santana, the, uh, the twins had. Uh -huh. And we couldn't crack him. We couldn't beat him, and yet we knew everything he was throwing. Uh, he tipped his pitches, and we still couldn't do anything with him. So there was a game that uh, he was pitching, and he left after the eighth inning, and uh, he had a shutout. So Dutchman went down and, and talked to him after the game. He said, Johan, he said, why did you leave? You don't want that shutout? He said, well, Bert, he says, you know, Shutouts are hard to come by. Did you ever have any? Bert looked at him and said, 60. <laughs> come on, man. Know your history a little bit. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it's, it's just wonderful. Harold's a gentleman. Uh, you know, he's a pretty good player, too. He's a pretty good golfer. He's got a beautiful golf swing. He and, and Junior, Ken Griffey Jr., they both have beautiful golf swings. and They can hit it a long way. They're good players. I think Harold probably is a little better player than Junior, but uh, you know, he's in, on the golf course. He's the same way. The only thing he'll do on the golf course is he'll smile a little bit more, 
And when you get a smile from him, you know, that speaks volumes. Yeah. I, we had Bill Melton on before you, Hawk, and he was talking about, you know, the, Harold's an ambassador now. I wouldn't think that Harold's walking into suites and chatting up whatever corporation, but apparently he's got this personality that's just coming out now. I don't, have, you, have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out now. Uh, it's, it's been a few years now that it's just starting to come out. You can see it. But he still does, does a lot of smiling, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, it's uh, – and if he if he can get away with a smile, he'll get away with it. If if it needs a, a verbal response, then he'll he'll give one now. Where a long time ago he wouldn't. Right. But he was like that in the clubhouse, you know. And he uh, he was a very unusual guy. And you know, people don't understand too. The Harold, the only thing he couldn't do on a baseball field was he couldn't run. He was not a speedy guy. He had he had decent speed, but he you know he was not a fast guy. And he was a good outfielder. He had good hands, had a terrific arm, had, he threw strikes, very accurate. And uh, people never talk about his defense, but he was a hell of a defensive player. But where he really made his mark with the players around all of Major League Baseball and with us was in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning because he's the guy that got the job done. And those, that's the way I judge guys. Don't tell me what the hell you hit. Tell me when you hit it. There are a lot of guys that go out and hit 290, 300, and hit 15, 16 home runs, driving 60, 70 runs. And it doesn't mean a whole bunch because it's coming when the score is, you know, 8 to 1, 10 to 2, something like that. And that's the way Yastrzemski was. Yastrzemski and Harold were the two poster child uh, children for guys getting the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning in a 2 1, 3 2, 2 nothing ball game and, and driving in one or two runs or two or three runs. And the the irony of that is that when we jumped out to a big lead, say, you know, seven to nothing, eight to two in the first three or four innings, Harold maybe would go one for four, one for five in that ball game. And Yaz was the same way. Uh, if we won a game 11 to nothing, he's liable to go for five or one for, four, one for five. But you get in those close ball games, then that's where they, that's where they made their impression on their teammates and everybody else around baseball. You know, what's interesting about what you're, there's a lot of stuff in there, Hawk, and Hawk Harrelson joining us here now on 720 WGN White Sox Weekly. Harold from 93 to 2001. Now this is, you know, the, the end of his prime and then the twilight of his career. He was on a one-year contract every single one of those years. So he knew he had the pressure that he had to go out there and perform or else his career could be over. And he went out and did it again and again and again and again So he, to play into his 40s. To, to me, that's super impressive, Hawk. Well, pressure, you know, the biggest killer performance mark in, in, in professional sports or in life uh, is, is pressure. That's the biggest killer performance. And you have to have a way of handling it, you know, and it, it, uh, Yaz had his own way. Yaz was a very unique guy. Usually when you see guys who are great in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings, those guys are a little unique. They're a little different than, than the average person. They have learned how to handle the pressure. And, you know, it's like uh, my first four or five years in the, in the major leagues, I stunk. I was, I was a strong kid, you know, and could hit it a long way. That's the only reason they kept me. But I, the pressure just ate me up. And then finally, Ted Williams and, uh, and Joe Cronin got to me and got started talking to me about not mechanics, not the swing or anything of that, what they're doing now with swing angles and exit velocity and all that stuff. But they got into my head, and there's a difference. You've got to have an approach. If 
you've got a good solid approach, then you can have a way to relieve the pressure. And I did it also with Hawk. You know, you're talking with Ken right now, but Hawk was a guy who we I used to sit on the on deck circle and I'd say, Okay, Hawk, let's let's get this thing together. We gotta do something here. And it was and uh, I talked to Dick Schwartz, who's one of the uh, world renowned psychologists, and he said it's very, very common that guys, especially athletes who are good athletes, would have an alter ego that when the pressure and the heat got on, that they called on their alter ego, either consciously or subconsciously. And and Harold handled the pressure. He handled the heat. Because you can't do what those guys do, like a Miguel Cabrera, like a big poppy, you know, like a George Brett, you know, like a you know, Albert Pujols. You can't do and now we're seeing it in, in Mike Trout, you know, and Bryce Harper. You can't do what they do in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning unless they have an approach. And that approach takes the heat off. Because when you step into that batter's box against a good major league pitcher, you better have a sense of control because if you don't, he's going to have it 60 feet, six inches away. And if you don't have a sense of control, then you're probably going to go over four, over five. And and that's what the Harold was able to do. As I said, he's the best left-handed hitter against good left-handed relievers in the seventh, eighth, and ninth that, that I've ever seen. I could talk about pressure all all day with you, Hawk, because it's it's one of the things I love to watch. Here's a guy who's coming up to the big leagues, and the, and the White Sox have a lot of guys who are on the fringe. Will they be here? Will they not be here? Charlie Tilson just gets sent out. Adam Engel's up. Brian Cordell's hanging around. And are you going to make it? Are you not? Are you going to have a cup of coffee in the big leagues? And you've got to handle it every time. you get got four at-bats a night, and maybe you're playing two days a week. And how do you settle yourself down in that moment? And then to go to the great players – who do it in the biggest moments when the crowd's going crazy, it's on the line for yourself, for your team, and all of it, and you're able to, as you're, I guess the way you're boiling it down is like, okay, this is my approach and this is what I do. That's right. And, you know, we had a guy, when he joined us, the first few months he was with us, I was really, I was really concerned about him. In fact, I told my wife, Eris, uh, I said, honey, I'm concerned about Polly. And she said, why? I said, because he's going to kill himself. I said, he didn't know how to take an 0 for 4. Mm-hmm. That's Canerico. Yep. Finally, Polly learned how to take an 0 for 4. And like Ted Williams said, he said, Hawkey said, a lot of times you're going to go to that plate. And that guy 60 feet, 6 inches that night is going to be better than you are. And you've got to understand that. You've got to be able to accept that. Because, for an example, now, if I go to the plate, and I'm going to face a Corey Kluber or Jake Arietta. I don't care how good I'm swinging the bat. If they hit their spots, I'm probably going to go over four, but I have to understand it. And that's what Paulie did, Canerico. He learned how to take an over four to where he wouldn't beat himself up so bad. And, you know, he'd go in that before, he would go into dugout after striking out or going over four. You know, he'd throw his helmet, break a bat, whatever. And he finally learned how to become one of the best clutch hitters in, in baseball. You know, probably at, what, 432 home runs. And he'd hit a lot of them in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Now, he's not in my top five, but I'll tell you what, he's in my top 10 or 15 that I've ever seen because of when he did it. And there was not a better – the only guy I've ever seen in my whole career of all the thousands of players I've seen and played with and played against who was a better fastball hitter than Paul Canerico was Frank Howard. And he was the guy, you know, who was 6'8", 303 pounds with a 37-inch waist, played with the Dodgers, you know, played with Washington. And he was the greatest fastball hitter I've ever seen. And Paulie was, is the second best because, I'll tell you, you couldn't shoot a 30-30 by that guy. 
I, you're, you're making me think right now about Game 2 of the 05 World Series right now, Hawk. And that was the seventh inning, Grand Slam, of which, uh, I don't know, one of the biggest home runs, if not the biggest, in White Sox history. And, the, and, and U.S. Cellular Field at the time, now guaranteed rate field, nearly came down. That was that was one of the biggest ones, right? Yeah, and he was, you know, he was looking for it. He got it. <clears throat> and the key is when you, you know, when you look, when you're a good fastball hitter. Now I was a good fastball hitter, but not in that category. I was not in Paulie's category as far as being a good fastball hitter, because a lot I'd get a good fastball a lot of times, and I, you know, hit it hard, but I'd put too much top spin on it, or I pop it up, or hit it out of the ballpark foul. Paulie hit it hard. And put it in play, and and usually had the right you know the right angle to get it out of there, and that's the reason that he became such a, a great clutch hitter. And and I'll tell you another guy that was a good clutch hitter too was Jermaine Dye. Mm-hmm. Jermaine was a good clutch hitter in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. That's one of the reasons you know that we won you know the World Championship in '05. So, you know, it's, again, as you mentioned, you touched on it just a while ago. We've got guys on our team this year who are not going to be here next year. You know, we've got some, we've got next year, we've got a chance. we got a chance to be, uh, I mean, a, a, a force, a factor. And then in 2001 or 2021, we got a chance to be a monster. And I, I, I am just so forward. I told I told Jason Benetti, who who's doing a great job. And I told uh, Jason, I said, "You're a lucky young man. You're coming in at just the right time. You're coming in at a time where this club is, you know, is going to be struggling a little bit uh, in 2018, 2019. But come 2020 and 2021, this club's got a chance to be a monster. And I said, I said, it's Sox Fest. In my opinion." Starting in 2020, it's got a chance to be the greatest baseball decade or decade for baseball in Chicago history because the Cubs are good. They're not going to go anywhere. they got a great manager, as we do. And with the talent that we're going to have, I mean, and the talent they've got, it's going to be fun to watch those two clubs uh, butt heads. And, and I think we'll have a chance somewhere in that decade to see uh, an inner city Crosstown World Series. Be unbelievable. You got to come out of retirement for that one, Hawk. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll be, you know, I'll be sitting here watching uh, watching the game with my Schmerinoff right beside me. <laughs> hey, before you go, I, I just wanted to ask you one historical moment with, with Harold, and, and that's 1989 where the White Sox trade him to the Rangers and they get a guy by the name of Sammy Sosa, who I know you loved, uh, in the Panther. And, and Wilson Alvarez. And Jerry Reinsdorf goes and retires Harold's number when he comes back with Texas because he was having a hard time not having him. The Sox were in a rebuild then, you know, similar to what they were in, uh, you know, a couple of years here. I, I'm just curious what you remember about that, that Hawk, and that time and seeing a guy like that leave. I remember vividly when, uh, we, got, when we got Sammy. Uh, you know, he was slimmed down and everything, and uh, – that's why I call him the Panther. You got a good memory, Mark. And and then uh, I remember the day also that that uh, we traded him yeah. to the Cubs for George Bell. And I was driving into the parking lot in in uh, Sarasota in spring training. Jerry called me, so we just uh, traded Sosa, and I was happy because he and I love Walter Reniac. 
as, as a person. He's, he's, he's a great guy. But he and Sammy did not get along. It's just that simple. I mean, and I was, and I would talk to Sammy almost every day, you know, and I'd, uh, I'd tell him, Sammy, I said, keep your dobra up, buddy. I said, you know, there are, there are other clubs out there. And sure enough, he went to uh, the Cubs, and he had, you know, uh, an unbelievable career, which, in my opinion, you know, a lot of this stuff about the PEDs that's going on, you take, you know, you take a guy like uh, Roger Clemens, seven-time Cy Young Award winner, and and, uh, and you take a guy like Mark McGuire, who was using androstein dioxin, which you could buy over the counter then. It was legal. He had in his locker. Yeah. Uh, he had it in his locker. It was just it was displayed. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Hawk. It was incredible. That's no, how it was. No, he had it in his locker. It's right. Yeah. You know, you could go to you could go to the PNC store and uh, and uh, and buy it. You know, right over the counter. And he did. Do you think Roger Clemens was taking anything to add another two miles an hour on his fastball? Anybody that thinks that's an idiot, because of the fact that here's a man that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I've never met this other guy that I'm going to mention, uh, and I don't want to meet him because I heard he's not a very nice guy, and that's Barry Barnes. But I also know I've heard that he might be the greatest player we've ever seen in the game of baseball, period. And for him not to be in there, in my opinion, is a joke. I mean, it really is. There are a lot of guys who are in there right now who are clean, like the big hurt, Frank Thomas was, you know, he was clean as a whistle. And, 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 and those guys don't like to hear about the possibility of these other guys being inducted into the Hall of Fame. But I got to tell you that, you know, when you talk about uh, the Hall of Fame, that is, that is something that's just surreal, so to speak, to, you know, baseball players. I've been there a few times and played in a couple of Hall of Fame games, you know, when we were up there. And, boy, when you walk around the halls there and you look at the plaques and you – you know, and you look at some of the videos and stuff like that. That's quite a thing. And and I was going to go up tomorrow for Harold's Day, but we have already scheduled a family affair and a family event. My family's coming in from a couple of other states, so I couldn't make it. But I'll tell you, I'll be watching it on TV. He's such a, as I said, uh, he's such an asset to the game of baseball, and it was such a great person. And, you know, you take out there another guy that has got a chance to go in there is, is Mark Burley. Sure. You know, Mark Burley is, is a guy who – Don Drysdale's in the Hall of Fame, and you know that Mark Burley won more games than Don Drysdale. And uh, we're going to, I think, I have a conference call uh, tomorrow uh, – Monday, rather. I was talking to uh, Bobby Bechtel. Uh, that's the anniversary of his uh, perfect game, which is, uh, you know, of all the thousands of games that I've ever called – that is the the most exciting game that I've ever called ever uh, because of the person. You know, I called another perfect game, and I called I think eleven or twelve no hitters. But if if the guy's not what you call a real good guy, in my opinion, then all you do is after the game you go up, you slap him on the fanny and say, "Nice going, kid." You know. But when you see a guy like a Mark Burley or a Robin Ventura, you know, when he was playing, those are my two favorite all-time White Sox players, is Mark and, and Robin. Those guys don't come along very often. And when you get guys like and that was one thing that Kenny and Jerry always wanted to do, was make sure they checked on the character of the players they were signing and character of the players they were trading for. And 
over in my 33 years of announcing with the uh, with the Sox. No doubt, no doubt. Hey Hawk, we got We're up against the break, so I got to run here. And uh, I I knew that I I would end up talking for 23 minutes and blowing off every single commercial that we have. So uh, that's just the way that one went. But uh, Hawk. And I know I know we don't have time for this, but you belong in that Hall of Fame too, man. For everything you've done, contributing to baseball and what you mean to the sport from from this vantage point, as far as broadcasters and players and all that, uh, you you should you should be joining them someday, Hawk. So anyway, that's that's just my opinion. But uh, we miss you, and uh, I, I thank you so much for talking on White Sox Weekly about Harold. It was awesome to have you on today. All right, Mark. Anytime, buddy. Anytime you want to talk, give me a buzz. Call Bob Graham. You know that. <laughs> I, I I know the procedure. That's that's my uh, okay. that, That's like me going in the batter's box or or what, what you were talking about with guys of their approach. Thanks, Hawk. Be good. Uh, all right, Mark. Be Bye-bye. well. All right, Hawk Harrelson on seven twenty WG, and we are a little bit late here, but uh, I love Hawk, so that's just the way that one went. Uh, quick timeout. News coming up seven twenty WGN. Two on, one out, three runs in, Sox up 6-2, the pitch is swinging a long one. Deep center field, Matos back at the track, at the wall, gone! Three-run homer, he dropped it over the wall. He slam-dunked a homer. Sox lead 9-2, there's the homer. Beans has hit his 11. August 15, 2000. That was the final big league homer for Harold Baines. It came against the Orioles. And, yes, Ed Farmer was on the call, who was also his teammate, and Farmer joining us right now on 720 WGN. How about that there, Ed Farmer, pulling out 2,000 calls from you? you got to be impressed. What happened to my voice? Oh, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, it sounded like I had crackers in my mouth, but that's okay. But, uh Harold goes in the Hall of Fame, and I could be happier for him. Uh, you know, I, th- I think Carm, and I could be just wrong with this, and I hope I am, but designated hitters don't get in there a lot. They, I think he's the first one. Could be wrong. But with him going in, he was a regular player before he became injured and had to not play the outfield but be the designated hitter, and he was great at doing that. And you never heard a word out of him that he was upset with what happened to him or what, what transpired. He could run, he could throw, he could hit with power. And him and Chet Lemon were our best players in, in 1980 and 81. And Harold Baines could go get him in the outfield with the best of them and run the bases so good it was ridiculous. I put a nickname on him that he and I share together. And I usually don't use it in public, but he's going in the Hall of Fame. I called him Mr. Fabulous when I first saw him. Uh-huh. He didn't disappoint me at all. Well, and what a great human being, too. I mean... Uh, just all around it. I used to say fly balls with him and Jimmy Pearsall in the outfield and right because I'd see him out there and Pearsall would be working him back and forth and laterally and I didn't want him to be tired when I came in the pitch. So I'd go out there and I became a decent outfielder doing it with uh, Jimmy Pearsall where I had no attention to that whatsoever and Harold Baines became one of the gifted guys. He had all the tools to do it and uh, boy could be happier for him and Mike Messina going in as well. That's awesome. You, Harold, and Jimmy Pearsall doing outfield drills before the game, Farmio. I've never heard that one. That's yeah, great. There, there was out batting practice, and Jimmy had a, uh, a baseball bat that he shaved uh, the barrel in half. And uh, he would hit fly balls from about 15 feet, Carm. That was about it. 
and he could move you around, and he was a tactician at doing it, and uh, he was one funny guy, and I had him laughing a lot. That was for sure. So I want to take the pressure off Harold too. There is. I saw something in Rick Morrissey's piece in the Sun Times or Farmville that I got to I got to ask you about here. Yeah. So Mike Squires said is is talking about how you guys used to have kangaroo court. And oh yeah, I was the judge. And you were the judge. And no one ever won a case. <laughs> and well, and Her- no, never, no one ever won a case. Well, it says here that Harold stole second base. He, he slides in, he pops up, he claps his hands, he was safe. And then you, Ed Farmer, didn't, uh, you know, were like, hey, that is too much emotion out of you, Mr. Exactly right. Yeah, he was too <laughs> emotional at that point. So I fined him for that. He went away from the regular stuff. <laughs> Sounds funny now, but everybody... It was ridiculous, Kangaroo Court. We sent most of the money to charity, and then we had a party at the end of the year, without, which I didn't attend. But, yeah, it was, uh, you know, you, you bond with these guys for six months, if that's what it is for most of them, and you care about them. And uh, this was one way of taking the pressure off uh, Tony LaRouche and Don Kessinger, I thought. And we had that once a week, and uh, the most fines I ever handed out was Tony LaRouche. Oh, oh really? Fi- yeah, you got fined twenty five hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. For- yeah. Because um, <laughs> he wasn't doing the right thing in court. He said, "I said uh, you." He jumped out of the dugout, and at that time at Comiskey Park, we didn't have a real good idea of what it was to drain the field. Although Roger Brossard wanted it uh, with Bill Vec, he he didn't have the money to pay for it, and the field was always wet. So Larusa comes out to argue a play. And we're in these white uniforms, which is unusual. Tops and bottoms. Usually it was a blue top with white pants at home. And he falls flat on his face on the warning track in front of our dugout. He gets up and his whole uniform that's white is now orange clay. And he wouldn't <laughs> go out there. So I find him for not sticking up for his players. $500. And he came in. I said to Lamar Johnson, he was, the, he was, my, he was my guy. He was a bailiff. I said, go get Mr. LaRussa and tell him to bring his checkbook. So he goes and gets Tony, and um, Tony goes, I'm not paying. I said, oh, no, you're going to pay. And he goes, I want the judge to note that I'm on the judicial board in the state of Florida. I said, so noted, but it has no jurisdiction whatsoever here in this municipality we call Comiskey Park. Do you understand <laughs> that? And he gives me the nod of the head yes. I said, Mr. LaRussa, I'm going to need an audible response. Now it's $1,000. You want to fool with this court? That's fine. He goes, I'm still not paying. I said, now it's $2,000. And he goes, you don't know anything about being a judge. I said, now it's $2,500. <laughs> and he paid it up. But, you know, the rest of the year, he was getting his money back. That's a dollar. That's $2. That's, and he was finding us. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was, and Harold was part of that. Too, ma- too emotional at second base. Just too, too emotional, you know. Because it wasn't him, but uh, and he took it with everybody had to fit in, and Harold sort of sort of fit in with everything, including the Hall of Fame. So I'm wondering, Farmio, here comes Harold. He's 21 years old. He's yes. you know number one overall draft pick uh, or first round draft pick rather, uh, no number one overall, and and uh, he's 18. He's up to the big leagues. You're a veteran. You're 30, and. He's this quiet guy. So are you thinking like, are, are, are you kind of aloof over there? I mean, how do you, how'd you get to know, know. him? No, I, I, well, he, he'd be in the clubhouse and I'd say, you don't talk enough. 
and he goes, I talk when I have something to say. I said, well, you're going to say something, especially in kangaroo court. And I'm not so sure he didn't like that better than anything except playing the game of baseball because he had a good time in there. And he doesn't show enough. He laughs a lot, and especially when I'm around. But he was laughing the whole time in kangaroo court. <laughs> Just a superb athlete, but a great person, too. And uh, never left uh, ma- never left where he grew up, just outside Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Farmville, great to talk to you as always. Have a great call today. All right, we- Carm, we'll see if we can call another winner. The Absolutely. White Sox ended last night a seven-game losing streak. We had 16 hits. Let's see if we get 10 or 12 and cut the game in half and still beat the Tampa Bay Rays. We'll see you at Guaranteed Rate Field coming up on Monday, sir. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, Farmio coming up. Thanks for taking time at Farmer down uh, with the club, of course. White Sox and Rays coming up. Andy Mazur's got your pregame at 435. And you should know that Sox fans, you can join us as the Sox take on the New York Mets. That's Thursday, August 1st at 1.10 p.m. First 10,000 fans will receive a free White Sox Let the Kids Play themed T-shirt. It's presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Uh, bring your business home to Bedford Park and win big. Purchase your tickets today by visiting whitesox.com or calling 866-SOX-GAMES. And spend your summer at the ballpark with bleachers and brews. Get one bleacher seat, two beers for $22 all season long. Must be 21 and over with a valid ID. Bleachers and brews presented by Budweiser. To purchase tickets, visit whitesox.com brew and enter that promo code brew. Ryan McGuffey did a special feature on Harold Baines for NBC Sports. It was phenomenal. I'm just going to have him explain some of that as we wrap it up here on White Sox Weekly. Coming up next, 720 WGN. Baines hit 341 against left-handers. Look out! This game is tied. And it hits the facing of the roof. That is your major tape measure job. If that ball had been over a foot or so, more towards center field, it does go on the roof, perhaps over, because it appeared to have the trajectory of still going up. A good low ball hitter, Harold Baines, gets challenged by Terrell. That was a rocket. April 26, 1986. Bob Costas, I think that was Tony Kubek as well. That was amazing. That was White Sox and Detroit, the facing at Old Tiger Stadium. Uh, Ryan McGuffey, who does phenomenal work at NBC Sports, he's a senior producer for NBC Sports Originals. He's on the White Sox Talk podcast. Nobody knows more about the White Sox than Guff, and he's joining us now. You, you, you. This is a true story. Uh, I think you came out of the womb, and uh, your your dad or your mom, somebody handed you a, a, a pennant, and a, and you were ready to roll. You did, you did you did a special thing on Harold Baines that I want you to talk about, Guff. As uh, he's of course going into the Hall of Fame tomorrow, uh, he's not the most loquacious guy, Harold Baines, but you got people talking about him. So tell us about what you can see. Yeah, it's uh, Harold Baines. Welcome to Cooperstown, and always good to be on with you, Carm. By the way, um, tomorrow at 11 a.m. before White Sox pregame live. We will, it, it will re-air, and then it will re-air again at uh, 4 p.m. after the newest episode of White Sox All Access. And then if you miss that again, 9 p.m. tomorrow, you're going to get a chance. You get three different chances tomorrow. So set your DVR. Uh, various sit-downs, including Harold Baines with Chuck Garfine. Uh, you know, we've had a good relationship. You mentioned, you know, Harold's not the most talkative guy, um, but 
he's a guy that in all the people that you know I've met in, in professional sports, he's the one guy I, I really believe he's probably the nicest guy. I, I, I he's certainly on my Mount Rushmore, but I can't think of three other people that that would be ahead of him. Always says hello. Always asks how your family's doing. Um, he's just one of those guys that um, probably a better guy than he was a player. And if, if, if you didn't get a chance to see Harold as a player, you really didn't miss out. And I think you missed out. And I know some people think it's controversial that he's in the Hall of Fame, but the guy was as steady as any player in the history of the game for 20 seasons. He just kind of showed up. He, he looked at the box score. He was always two for four, you know, and he just always, you know, laced some extra base hits into the gap or, you know, onto a roof as we bumped in with there. Um, but, yeah, you're going to see Harold kind of open up about a lot of different things, including why President George W. Bush apologized to him after making a comment and, and when he was running for president that uh, the worst thing he ever did was trade Sammy Sosa for Harold Baines. He ap- Bush um, apologized to Harold for that? That's amazing. When the White Sox won the World Series in 05 and went to the White House and George W. Bush was president, he apologized to him there. And here's the thing I think is actually cooler. Baines gets in the Hall of Fame a week later, receives a handwritten note from George W. Bush to congratulate him. Wow. I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, so that tells you kind of how George W. came full circle and really, you know, pay it forward, so to speak. So that's in there. We get into that. Um, Just a lot of different things. You know, Harold obviously has a unique relationship with his dad, broke down at the winter meetings in an interview with us, and we kind of circle uh, circle back to that. And then we have Jerry Reinsdorf the chairman and some of his closest uh, teammates and friends and Nazi Gian and, and Ron Kittle. Ron Kittle saying that he would take a bullet for him and also would give him the 134 hits that he would need to get to 3,000. It's the only player in the history of baseball that's played the game that he would do that for. Yeah, we had Kitty on, and uh, I, I knew that they were close, but I didn't know they were that close. I mean, Ron, I agree. You know, no, I agree. He he is he loves loves Harold. Do you talk to Herm Schneider too? But I, I got like one second here, Gov. But did you talk to Herm? We did not. But we, you know, Herm. Uh, I know he's got the real stories on not just Harold, but every player that's ever worn a White Sox uniform. It's, apparently, they used to get up on the road and go walk around whatever city and have some coffee, and then then Herm would help him get his knees loose and play. You know, go play a baseball game. Uh, all right, eleven. Evidently, yeah, evident, <laughs> evidently, that, that was that was very good, very good. All right, eleven a.m. tomorrow is your first shot at a welcome to Cooperstown. I'm looking forward to watching it, man. That's awesome, and uh, you do great work, Ryan McGuffey. Appreciate you taking a minute here. So do you, Carm. Always, uh, always love being on with you, bud. Thanks, brother. Be well, Ryan McGuffey, uh, over at NBC Sports Chicago. If you want to check out uh, the feature there, it sounds like it's going to be a good one. Hey, Sox fans, join us for Country Music Night as the Sox take on the Twins on Friday, July 26th at 7:10 p.m. Be sure to stay after the game for the post-game fireworks. That is uh, presented by Coca-Cola. Grab an ice cold Coca-Cola and enjoy the game. To purchase tickets, visit WhiteSox.com. How about that? George Bush apologizing to Harold Baines. I think he was just kind of joking, you know, giving up Sammy and all the attention that he got. Uh, And then it probably came back and he realized, oh, I just hurt Harold's feelings. I'm assuming that that was at least part of that conversation. Let's get a quick timeout, get you one more check of news, and then Annie Mazur's got your pregame show at 435. White Sox Weekly, 720 WGN. 2-2 coming to Baines. Drive the center field. This will win it for the Orioles. Harold Baines with a grand slam home run. Harold Baines 
with a grand slam home run to win this game, nine to five. Harold did not enter into this game to the ninth, ties it up in the ninth, or was a part of it, and then this right here, Harold knew he had it. Now, he probably shouldn't have played that one, but that was Harold with the Orioles doing it to the White Sox, May 4th, 1999. Congrats to Harold going into the Hall of Fame. Thank you to Hawk Harrelson for jumping on today, to Bill Melton, to Ryan McGuffey, to Ed Farmer, who's, of course, coming up a little bit later with the call today. Andy Mazur's got your pregame after the 4.30 news. And take the family out to the ball game with a family four-pack. You get four tickets, four hot dogs, four drinks, four chips, starting at $49. It's brought to you by Country Financial. Prepare for your financial future one simple step at a time at takesimplesteps.com. For tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash four-packs and enter that promo code VALUE. Thank you to Curtis Koch for producing today. Awesome job, as always. Thanks to Krista Flores, too, for helping us getting Ed Farmer on the radio as well. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.